0: Hey, it's alan and i just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad free on amazon music included with prime one thing before we start the show i want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode it's with the host of a brand new podcast called art catex the architects of art the cool thing is this show is hosted by director x and taj critchlow two of the biggest music video directors on the planet These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. By the time we got to the mid-1970s, most of rock had organized itself so that there were rules. You did things this way and not that way. Then came punk. One of the great gifts of punk rock was a reminder that you didn't always have to follow the rules. Once this attitude took hold, things began to fragment, metamorphosize, and mutate at an increasingly rapid rate. The stratification and segmenting was astonishing. Once punk began to cool, the environment it created coalesced into what became known as New Wave, an approach that redefined what rock could sound like. Then New Wave itself began to fragment, thanks to technology. The new cheaper, portable, and more powerful synthesizer was a godsend, you really didn't have to know much about music to operate one. You just kind of fiddled around until you found some cool sounds and then organized those sounds into a song. Like the original punks, attitude and a willingness to put your music out there was way more important than musical ability. Except this time, you did it with this new technology, synths instead of guitars. And this was the foundation of what came to be known as techno-pop, which blew up at the end of the 1970s. And it didn't take long for technopop to separate into different strands which appealed to different people. Some burned out quickly, new variants emerged for a while and then disappeared. And then there were mutations that turned into something robust and enduring to the point where they still exist today. This episode is about one such strand that survived the post-punk explosion of the late 1970s and early 80s. We call it industrial music. And a uh, word of warning here. This show is going to be very intense. Very loud and very heavy. This is the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. (laughs) Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails from late 1989 in something called the Slate Mix of Head Like a Hole, one of the great industrial songs of all time. Hi, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the third installment of our examination of the explosion of new music that immediately followed the appearance of punk in the 1970s. We call this the post-punk era. We've looked at New Wave and its offshoot Technopop, and budding off from Technopop was industrial music, one of the most enduring subsets of alternative music that we've ever seen. If we're going to begin with the very roots of this music, we have to go all the way back to 1928, when Leo Theremin and Maurice Martineau introduced the first electronic instruments. This was the start of a revolution in musical instrument design, because over the next 20 years, a bunch of other people came up with new types of keyboards that used electricity to make sound. Some musical, some not. There was the Electron, the Obukov, the Dynaphone, the electronic sackbutt, among others. The place where this new electronic music really first caught on was in West Germany. By 1953, Karl Heinz Stockhausen had an electronic music studio near Cologne, and a little avant garde scene began to develop oscillators, wave generators, tape loops, white noise composition. Much of it was, how do we say this? Not exactly melodic, you know, banging metal pipes together, for example. It it was very cold, it was abrasive, and sometimes downright aggressive. One term for this type of composition was Musique Concrete. Let's skip ahead to 1965. That's when Dr. Robert Moog invented the Moog synthesizer. Now, this is very important because up until then, synthesizers were honestly the size of railway cars. They were these giant humming things that gave off a lot of heat and could only be programmed by making connections with hundreds of patch cords. Dr. Moog's synthesizer was still ungainly and, uh, okay, it was ugly, but at least it was a little more manageable in terms of size. And this made it possible for more musicians to experiment with this new instrument. Once again, most of the experimentation took place in West Germany. In 1967, the all-electronic band Tangerine Dream was formed. They were followed in 1968 by a really avant-garde group called CAN. And other people began to explore the sonic possibilities of oscillators and the other fiddly bits of electronics that generated otherworldly sounds. The big break came in 1971, when Dr. Moog showed up again, this time with a new synthesizer design he called the Mini-Moog. This one invention made much of today's music possible. It could do almost everything that one of those old boxcar-sized synths could do, but was a little bigger than a suitcase, making it extremely portable. But its most important asset was that it was much cheaper, making this new technology accessible to a new generation of young musicians, many of whom came of age in the era of punk. Again, people went nuts in West Germany. There was a huge surge in interest in electronic music. And the group that emerged as the leader on the electronic frontier was Kraftwerk. Okay, not exactly warm and fuzzy music, right? But there was an appeal in this sort of provocative music. Some took it even further. In 1975, Lou Reed, having left the Velvet Underground a few years earlier, was in a dispute with his record label. He wanted out of his contract, but RCA was adamant. He had to provide them with the required number of albums as stipulated in his contract. So as a big FU, he released a double album called Metal Machine Music. All you need to know about metal machine music is that it sounds like this. That goes on for 64 minutes over four sides. Actually, no, that's not true. The final groove on side four was closed, meaning that the last bit would never run out. The needle would just go round and round and round and round, and that noise would go on and on and on and on. If you ever wanted to clear out a party at the end of the night, you just put that on. Yet, there are some people who consider metal machine music to be a landmark in avant-garde music. Aggressive? Definitely. Provocative? Certainly. Painful? Absolutely. The sheer unlistenability of that album had its appeal to some. Okay, hold that thought. Next, we have to consider the impact of certain disco records, like this. That's disco queen Donna Summer from 1977 with I Feel Love. And that was the first truly computerized-slashed-synthesized dance single which she created with the help of producer Giorgio Moroder. And while some didn't like the disco trappings of the song, they did like the synthesizers. Again, this was 1977. Synthesizers were still very, very, very new. It's also worth a reminder of the Normals' Warm Leatherette from November 1978. Daniel Miller, who's the guy behind the Normal took some elements of Kraftwerk, Lou Reed, and Giorgio Moroder to create this. Warm. Leatherette. Warm. Leatherette. Warm. Leatherette. By 1979, even as Technopop was still finding its legs, it had this cold, distant cousin. And given the state of the world at the time, a brutal recession, high unemployment, the heating up of the Cold War, this music seemed to capture a certain dystopian view of the future. Some called this Cold Wave, minor key stuff, harsh, mechanical, robotic, and featuring bleak lyrics. Or something even worse, sexual perversion, the occult, a fascination with pain and death, and even in some cases, fascism. It was definitely not for everyone. Cold Wave had a cousin called No Wave, which was very nihilistic and dissonant and hard to listen to, but artsy, and it came out of New York City. It could get synthy, but it also brought in traditional instruments. Here's a sample from Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. This was released in 1978 on a label called Migraine Records. One, two, three, four, brutality! Other post-punk groups were making contributions, too. Take Johnny Leiden and Public Image Limited, for example. Johnny had always been a big fan of the German avant-garde group called Can, and once he was out of the Sex Pistols, he was free to indulge in his musical whims. Pill's philosophy seemed to be that you could still dance while the apocalypse unfolded. This is a single from the summer of 1979 called Death Disco. Now we come to an extremely important band in the development of industrial music. Throbbing Gristle came out of Hull in the northeast of England. Not a really happy place in the late 70s in terms of the economy. It was actually pretty bleak. In the beginning, Throbbing Gristle was half punk, half performance art group. But by the end of the 1970s, they were heavily into a world of their own. Throbbing Gristle was fascinated by torture, cults, war, the occult, pornography... And societal taboos in general the music was confrontational and often deliberately unpleasant here for example, is part of a 1980 track called hamburger Lady uh, and just so you know there is nothing wrong with your equipment this this is how it's supposed to sound <laughs> This was new, this was weird, and this was aggressive, but not without its appeal to a certain subset of fans looking for music that matched their view of the world, especially in light of the worldwide recession in the late 70s and early 80s. Oh, and another thing. Throbbing Gristle was probably the first group to use the term industrial to describe their music. They took their idea from a San Francisco artist named Monty Cazaza. He coined the phrase industrial music for industrial people and it was throbbing gristle that put sound to that statement. They were very serious about the industrial image of their music. A lot of it sounded like it was recorded in a factory. Their record label was called Industrial, and their first formal record was entitled Second Annual Report. This industrial imagery and feel was also being promoted by a number of other groups, groups with names like SPK, Nurse With Wound, DAF, Controlled Bleeding, and WIRE. But the most serious of them all was a group from Berlin called Einstusein de Neubauten. In the beginning, Neubauten didn't even bother with instruments. These guys weren't into chord changes or melodies or anything like that. They made their music with anvils, sledgehammers, by breaking glass, and banging lead pipes, and sheet metal, and of course, power tools. Neubauten sounded like a 15-car pileup on the floor of a steel plant. And they were proud of it. Here's a sample. Einstein's Neubauten was into using all sorts of sound, no matter how strange. For example, Blixa, the uh, singer, once wired his chest with microphones and had someone give him a bear hug until his ribs cracked. And Neubauten used the sound in one of their compositions. Industrial music quickly became known for these kinds of extremes. And again, you know, extremes are not without their appeal. We need to move back to England for a moment to pick up on developments there. Hang tight. This is part three of our look at the kind of music that evolved immediately in the wake of punk in the late 1970s and early 80s, what's become known as the post-punk era. Back in England, a group from Sheffield called Cabaret Voltaire had been experimenting with noise, tape loops, and samples since the early 1970s. But by 1981, they had made a turn into some hard electro-funk that was quite popular with the ultra-hip dance floor crowd. In 1982, they released 2x45, which was an album spread out over two 12-inch singles, that played at 45 RPM. This is called Yashar. Like we said before, the late 70s and early 80s was a time of tremendous upheaval in the world of music. The spark supplied by punk ignited an explosion of new ideas and new approaches to music. And by 1982, some of the resulting shrapnel had coalesced into a rapidly growing industrial scene. By this time, industrial music was looked upon as the ugly cousin of technopop, which was a pretty good analogy, actually. Below the surface, industrial and technopop had a lot in common, and there was a lot of crossover between the two scenes, and they tended to feed off each other for ideas. Depeche Mode is a great example. They were caught right in the middle. They had a reputation of being a polite and reasonably innocuous techno-pop band. But if you had asked songwriter Martin Gore who he listened to in his spare time, he would have listed names like Fad Gadget, the group that liked to use Black & Decker power drills in their music. Then there was Test Department, a group who liked to stage performances in places like quarries and car factories. And, of course, Einsturzende Neubauten, This aggressive approach to music really appealed to Martin, and as he began to assert more and more control over Depeche Mode, he began to incorporate some industrial elements in his music. In 1983, Depeche Mode released an album with the industrial-sounding name Construction Time Again. The music didn't have the same intensity of Neubauten, but it did share a lot of the same headspace, especially when it came to percussion sounds. Songs like Everything Counts from Depeche Mode helped fuse the world of techno-pop and industrial music, bringing the two types of music back under the same roof again. It was a synthesis of the raw sounds of Throbbing Gristle, Test Department, and Neubauten with melody and conventional song structure. And there were a lot of people ready to pick up on this, including a refugee from the Cuban Revolution named Alan. Alan was in a techno-pop band from Chicago that had spent some time touring with both Depeche Mode and Culture Club. His record company had high hopes for him. And for a while, Alan played the corporate game. Here's a sample of his group's early work. But then something kind of snapped He was dropped by his record label, and Alan found himself out of work. But instead of giving up, he decided to start his career from scratch. And in 1984, 1985, Alan dabbled in goth music. But in 1986, through some Depeche Mode connections, he hooked up with producer Adrian Sherwood. Adrian had created some pretty radical remixes for Depeche Mode, most notably for People Are People and Master and Servant. Alan really liked the heavy percussion. He loved the onslaught of electronic rhythm and the use of distortion and tape loops. He jumped at the chance to work with Adrian, and the result was a 1986 album entitled Twitch. This is over the shoulder from Al Jorgensen and Ministry. We've come to a point where we need to look at how industrial music was redefined in the 1980s. Before about 1982, industrial music was the domain of bands like Throbbing Gristle and Einsturzende Neubauten, with their cold clanging and banging. But by the mid-1980s, there had been a change. Throbbing Gristle had broken up, Neubauten had discovered to use chord changes, and a new synthesis of styles was developing. It was a cross between the factory sounds of the original industrial movement and the more aggressive elements of techno-pop. It was still loud and harsh and angry and dark and distorted, but you could dance to it. And one of the first groups to strike this balance was Canada's Skinny Puppy. They were formed in Vancouver in 1982 and almost immediately carved out their own special sound with keyboards and samplers that took clips from horror movies. They had drum machines, and they had loud guitars. Perhaps more than any other band from the early 80s, Skinny Puppy was more important to the development of the modern industrial sound than anyone else. This is from 1986. It's Dig
1: It.
0: Skinny Puppy and Dig It from 1986 tremendously important and influential. Here's a short list of artists who say they were inspired and influenced by Skinny Puppy, Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson, The Prodigy, Ramstein, Filter, Korn, Lincoln Park, Evanescence. I could go on, but you get the idea. Back with a look at where industrial music went next in just a sec. By 1987, it was very clear that things were changing rapidly on the industrial scene. Thanks to groups like Skinny Puppy and Ministry, guitars were being used a lot more, especially by North American industrial groups. New synthesizer technology allowed for creative use of samples, and more and more music fans were diving in. Some danced, some just listened. Once bands like Ministry and Skinny Puppy showed everyone how it could be done, people started taking notice of other groups who were into the same kind of headspace. There was or Ebb, the band from Chelmsford, England with a German-sounding name. They were big fans of the original German industrial sounds and had been experimenting with synthesizers and drum machines since about 1983. From Chicago, there was d Warza, another group that acknowledged the German heritage of industrial music with their name. KMFDM came out of Germany. From Switzerland, we had the Young Gods. Plus, people began to pick up on groups with names like Frontline Assembly, Pankow, Psychic TV, Leibach, and many others. Another group that really started to catch on was Belgium's Front 242, They had been creating what they called electronic body music as early as 1981. And legend has it that it was at a Front 242 show in Chicago that Alan Jorgensen had his epiphany, of sorts, the one that showed him the error of his meek techno-pop ways. Several members of Front 242 actually helped in ministry's transition by appearing on those groundbreaking records of the mid-80s. Front 242's turn in the spotlight came in 1988, when they released an album called Front by Front, which contained this song. It's called Headhunter. The period from 1988 to the present has been a very good time for fans of industrial music. Al Jorgensen and Ministry have been at the forefront, peaking in 1992 when they were second from the top on the Lollapalooza tour. But at the very top of the heap is undoubtedly Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor continues to release some of the heaviest material out there, but he's also now an acclaimed composer of soundtracks for TV and movies. The man's got Oscars and Emmys in addition to his Grammys. Industrial music has not enjoyed the widespread popularity that it had in the 90s, but it's still very much out there. And some people will say that industrial music isn't what it used to be anymore. And they're probably right. It's evolved from the primitive clanging and banging into something very sophisticated. It's an amalgam of metal, distortion, percussion, samplers, and synthesizers. It's not for everyone. But if you like your music hard, it's just fine. On the next program, Exploring the Post-Punk Era, we're going to look at something sort of related to both techno-pop and industrial, but it's also its own unique thing. It's the rise of dance music in the post-punk era. It's not disco. It's not anything traditional, but something brand new. Alt dance. Until then, you can find me at my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Podcasts are available wherever you get on-demand audio, and feel free to email me anytime at Allen at allencross.ca. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. I'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's ongoing history of new music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast, and Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art And I have two of the hosts of Art with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So, who wants to go first? and explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint, if you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast,
2: Chance Stern Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most Uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come-ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet.
0: Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with?
1: I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande,
0: well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Corn, John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey. And and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now is still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company Fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Popstar. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario, that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world, and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium.
0: Okay, how are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video, now it's going to be only audio, so uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess.
1: I mean. We're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing, you know what I mean um, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last the first podcast, the debut of our of the show was with Dave Myers, um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. and just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done, And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about Black Lives Matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a a little different than what we're used to doing.
0: Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story.
2: I guess examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, your lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment, and and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and and that that piece of art. I fair as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're 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 giving them that kind of you know close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line right
0: i've I've always I've often watched music videos and wondered, where the hell did this come from? What kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things. Uh, And, and I have no idea.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh and aerosmith and I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry like a wolf video. Like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and 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 just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the Stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And And before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for
0: this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called art Catechs with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys.
2: All right.